Hi, thanks for listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Gene Woodbury. I'm the Policy and Communications Director for Equality Arizona and the host of this podcast. Each week on the show, I sit down with an LGBTQ person living in Arizona and talk with them about their communities and their experiences in the state. Today, I'm really happy to publish my conversation with Dr. Avi Vieira. We had the opportunity to work together this legislative session on some really critical bills. Their insights as a therapeutic professional, particularly someone working with transgender youth, were invaluable to our efforts as an organization pushing back on anti-trans legislation this session. I really loved the conversation we recorded together, and I hope that you do too. As a reminder, we're always looking for new guests to come on the show. If you're part of an LGBTQ community in Arizona, please sign up today on our website. Just visit equalityarizona.org stories. And now I'll let Avi introduce themselves and get the conversation started. Hi, I'm, I'm Dr. Avi Vieira. I am a postdoctoral resident uh, working in a private practice clinic uh, in Mesa, Arizona, uh, specializing in LGBTQ therapeutic care. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you again. (laughs) Yeah, it's really good to see you. Uh, We were able to connect, uh, I think, just during this legislative session around some of the bills. Um, How long have you been engaging on on that kind of advocacy level alongside your practice? That's kind of a big question because it's I've always had an interest in in politics. I I have a a poli-sci minor. Years ago before I got into psychology I used to do advocacy work back in New Mexico back when uh, same-sex marriage was was a big topic of the day. Yeah. Back then New Mexico was trying to get civil unions approved by the legislature. What year would that have been? I want to say 2004, 2005. Okay. It was was after 03, because that was when Massachusetts started same-sex marriage. So states were either approving or denying across the course of New Mexico was the one state that didn't have anything in law either way. Oh, yeah. Um, so at the time, everyone was trying to play it safe. Um, yeah. Equality New Mexico was the organization then. Yeah. Um, saying like, well, let's see if we can at least get civil unions right. passed. And oh my God, it was three, four years of uh, advocacy, lobbying, and it, it never went anywhere. Yeah. And then it was 20. 13, I think it was. Um, by that point in time, they had given up on, on civil unions and had pushed for marriage equality. That makes sense. Uh, and they're backing a, a case for the Supreme Court, the New Mexico Supreme Court. Okay. And it was in December, again, I can't remember, 2013, 2014, but it went and it was noteworthy that it was the only unanimous decision by state Supreme Court oh, yeah. that affirmed 
well, same-sex marriage. That's a ten-year uh, struggle, I, I think. So yeah, when you yeah. put that much time in, that's something that can happen. Although, I mean, yeah. everyone like it's a much longer than ten years thing. But just for you, you were doing that for ten years, right? Uh, was that right out of college, or even while you were in college well, at I the was beginning? In, in college, okay. yeah. Um, it was uh, in 2010 that I started grad school, so okay. I had moved to Arizona, so while I was connected, I wasn't able to do a whole lot in, in that last leg in, in New Mexico for it. I see. Um, Before you came to Arizona, had you been in New Mexico your whole life? Whole Grew life, up there, yeah. Born there? Born and raised in Santa Fe. Yeah. I, I always have an interesting experience when I go to New Mexico, because I kind of expect, well, it's southwest it's going to be the same <laughs> and it's different in these really kind of like parallel universe ways yeah. even like the food that you might expect to be similar there's a whole different kind of cuisine there um what was your experience in the reverse moving here for you moved for grad school yeah yeah um it was a bit of a culture shock yeah coming here um the food's different, mm -hmm. <laughs> similarities, but like very, very different. Like um, the Spanish is different. Oh yeah. From Northern New Mexican Spanish is different than Mexican Spanish. Like similar words, but the meaning is different. Right, It's a different yeah. dialect. It's, yeah. it's almost uh, Elizabethan type Spanish. Oh, interesting. It's this little bubble from like colonial in Spain, In northern New Mexico? In northern New Mexico. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then did you move to the Phoenix area or southern southern Arizona? Came to, to Phoenix. Okay. Um, yeah, that was November of 2010. Okay. Um, and that's a big difference from New Mexico too because the, the urban area here is, is Pretty different in my experience, even from like maybe Albuquerque. Yeah, and Albuquerque is the biggest city mm -hmm. in New Mexico, and it's just over a million people. Yeah, uh, and coming to the valley, which is like five million, yeah. give, or, give or take, uh, there's more people in the valley than in the entire state of New right. Mexico. Um, that was that was a big shock. I felt like the little country bumpkin. Oh yeah, <laughs> coming to the big city. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is a little bit. I mean, I, I grew up in not the city central, right? So in the past few years, when I've moved into a more dense area, mm -hmm. even I felt like that. So I, I can totally relate. But did you also feel like excited in some way? Did you feel like there were new opportunities? I mean, you moved for grad school, so on that level, it's just a big change. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There, there was some excitement. It was, it's, it was a change. Uh, uh, I had lived in in Las Vegas, Nevada, before okay. ar around so two thousand one. I mean, that's more exciting than Phoenix in some ways. Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a twenty four hour city and everything. But right. So I'm kind of used to have living in in urban areas before. I see. Yeah. Um, it had been 10 years since I, I lived in Vegas. Yeah. Um, so, well, there was excitement over the change. There was definitely an adjustment. I mean, the climate is completely different. That's true, one. too, yeah. Uh, Santa Fe's climate is more similar to Flagstaff. Yeah, so that, we actually right. get winter, we actually get snow. Yeah. Uh, moving here in November, 
and it's 80 degrees. <laughs> okay, this, this is gonna be, well, I guess air conditioner is gonna be a year round thing yeah. here. It basically is. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting triangle of Northern New Mexico, Maricopa County, Las Vegas, three very different pockets of the Southwest. Yeah. What were some of the culture and community differences that you've seen between those areas? Um, in, in urban areas, either in, in Las Vegas and here Maricopa County, uh, a lot more cultural diversity. Mm -hmm. While New Mexico likes to brag about its, its diversity, it still tends to be a Native American, uh, Hispanic, Latino, and white Caucasian. The, right. the three main main cultures. Smaller pockets of, of uh, other uh, race, nationality, cultures, but really, really tiny. Mm -hmm. Moving to Vegas and suddenly seeing the wide uh, Asian demographic to, to really meet and make friends with different Asian cultures for one, mm -hmm. uh, different African cultures, different European cultures, that I found to be so cool. Yeah. To, to not just be exposed to it, but like interested and really wanting to know. And forming real relationships. Forming real relationships and getting a taste of the cultures, like figuratively and literally, being able to go to different restaurants Trying the food, getting, right. seeing art, and really getting a, a, a flavor of it. Um, yeah, that's definitely something about um, the Phoenix area, moving between different neighborhoods and different cities in the metro area. You really can interact with a lot of cultures in, in a really exciting and, and interesting way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, coming, coming into Arizona, uh, I found it really cool uh, with uh, the Native American cultures. Mm -hmm. In northern New Mexico, uh, it's mostly Pueblo culture, the, the different Pueblos. There's 19 of them, and they are all distinct. There's a lot of diversity in that. While within still kind of being within the Pueblo sphere. Right. Versus Arizona, Navajo, Hopi, yeah. yeah. Uh, the so, 22 the, different tribes. 22 different tribes, really distinct from each other. Again, for me, like, I find that just so cool. So have you spent time kind of moving around the state of Arizona in, in those different communities? Yeah. What brings you into those uh, different spaces? Curiosity, tourism. Oh, yeah, I, I love that. Kind of like, you know, uh, the... the just the the curious aspect and like that's kind of like downtime to to go and just get out of town and and see something different yeah Holbrook is not the same as Phoenix Tucson is not the same as Yuma absolutely not Kingman is not the same as Payson yeah um I was kind of raised with that curiosity of like explore the state that you live in. Don't I don't just want to overreach, but I feel like that's kind of a New Mexico sensibility. A, uh, a little bit, yeah. New Mexico has all these little pockets that are exciting and interesting. Uh, I keep using those words, I don't know why that's my theme <laughs> today, but little cities in New Mexico that have just radically different characters from other cities. 
I'll say like it, it's it's a New Mexico thing, but kind of culturally, a lot of people don't get out. I I used to make fun of folks in Albuquerque that like they didn't like going to Santa Fe because it was too far, <laughs> forty five minute drive. Yeah. Like oh Santa Fe, oh that's so far away. People in Santa Fe would have no problem going to Albuquerque. Sure, that's where Costco is. So. <laughs> but my parents kind of raised uh, me and my siblings to not just look at it of like going to Albuquerque and not just going to Las Cruces, but taking us to the little towns in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico. I love that. And I kind of complained about that as a kid. But now you do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Were your parents also longtime New Mexico residents? Yes, uh, I, my family is like twentieth generation. Oh wow! I, I, okay. We we can go back to like colonialization. Wow. Do you do you think that eventually you'll want to move back to New Mexico? Yeah, it, it's kind of a joke uh, <laughs> with everybody in New Mexico that like. Uh, as teens, like we hate it. Nothing. Right. There's nothing yeah. to do. I mean, yeah. As soon as I'm old enough, and I've got them, like, I'm gonna go move out to the big city. Yeah. And as soon as we do that, there's this pull back. Yeah. Constantly, we call it the land of entrapment. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um. From like my first month living anywhere else, like. I kind of miss home. I kind of want to go back. Like, Mexico's not that bad. Yeah, I think there's something about the Southwest in general that feels that way, because I've definitely felt that way and seen people I grew up with feel that way about Arizona. You know, oh, I'll go off, but then I, I really want to go back. There's something for me there yeah. that keeps me wanting to come back. With current politics and everything, that's kind of putting a thumb on the scale, like, yeah, I'm probably going to end up going back sooner rather than later at some point. That makes sense. How well, soon will depend. Yeah, there's a question I wanted to ask. You were very involved in queer organizing in New Mexico for mm -hmm. a long period of time. And it, from my perspective, you're very embedded in that here, too. Um, yeah. What are the, some of the differences you've seen in terms of how people go about it and the outcomes that are possible in New Mexico versus maybe Arizona? Well, speaking from like Santa Fe, which mm -hmm. almost feels like a, a, a bubble. Like a little Pol enclave? Yeah, it, it, it's the bluest of the blue in a yeah. blue state. Uh, whereas the rest of New Mexico leans Democrat, leans liberal, but the, the shade of blue differs. I see, yeah. Um, like growing up, or I should say in, in adulthood, like Santa Fe didn't have like a dedicated like gay bar. Ah, uh, yeah. Nobody really saw a need for it. There's such a huge LGBT population in Santa Fe that everywhere kind of has to be LGBT friendly. Oh, yeah. Because if they weren't, it ain't gonna last long. Like word of mouth, that's will a really good point. Quickly, yeah. it just won't survive. Were there dedicated LGBT spaces though? Without the bars, I think sometimes it can be a question of, well, what's our place? Even if we're welcome here, 
there used to be. Um, but like, like for, for youth, say like a, a program like one in 10 mm-hmm. here, here in the yeah. valley or now in the state, there wasn't really anything like that I in think. Santa Fe. Um, there were organizations and programs like the Center for Contemporary Arts would offer groups and spaces for the youth in Santa Fe to, oh, yeah. to get together. And that kind of just naturally became hubs where the queer kids would go. I like that, yeah. Put up an art space and yeah, we're all gonna for show sure. it. <laughs> art, theater, music, whatnot. Are those some of the same spaces that you find yourself gravitating towards here in Phoenix? Yes. I wish I had more time to That's do that. That's difficult, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see a lot more of that, like, rebellious artistic spirit. I kind of get that uh, around Roosevelt First Fridays and everything. Right. I'd like to see that spread out more. I'd love to see something like in the East Valley happening yeah. like that in the West Valley. Those areas get really kind of neglected, I think. There yeah. are people there who have that creative drive, absolutely. Yeah. And there are communities, but there's not the anchor necessarily or the center of gravity for it. Right, right. And the, there, there's points of view and, and culture and art and everything happening over here that like, we should be paying attention to that. I'd yeah. love to see that. I mean, the, the best example in Santa Fe, uh, being such an artistic city and everything, and it's an art destination, the local artists, the younger artists, yeah. weren't being seen. Oh, there right, wa- yeah. There wasn't a venue for it. This is how Meow Wolf got started. Can you tell me a little bit about that artist? Uh, a, a little bit, yeah. The, the younger artist doing stuff that wasn't Southwest art. Right, The yeah. typical you know, Southwest Vista or tourist claptrap, like, oh, here's a, right. a, a wooden statue of a coyote with a, a bandana around its neck. Right, something you might see at like a gift shop in uh, Northern Arizona. Right, something more modern, avant-garde. Mm-hmm. It, and mixed media pieces no one was was really paying attention. There wasn't a venue for any of those artists to showcase any of their work. No galleries were going to host them. Yeah. Uh, it was the Center of Contemporary Arts in Santa Fe that offered uh, a group of artists at, at this time, they were kind of collaborating together for, for artwork that uh, offered them a space, you know, do whatever you want we'll, we'll showcase it for a couple months uh, this is how Meow Wolf was born they they did uh, uh, it was like an interactive pirate ship oh, that's amazing. With, with different decks and rooms and different stuff going on and it was so popular people it stayed open for months that was their first chance to really showcase the work and be able to say like look, people do want to see this like it's it's different yeah, and that's that's where they ended up looking to get a permanent venue for new artwork. Converted the old bowling alley in town, and that's now the House of Eternal Return. And 
that took over and now that's one of the the big tourist spots for Santa Fe that you're going to Santa Fe you got to go to Meow Wolf right oh wow and now they've opened in Las Vegas and in Denver and I believe they're going to be looking to open in Phoenix pretty soon too oh that would be really cool the collective well, just keeps growing yeah yeah I think there's a good arts culture around ASU, actually. I've, I've been able to engage with that a bit. Yeah. You went to ASU for graduate school? Or? No, I, I went to Argosy University. Okay. It was a tiny for-profit school. It doesn't exist anymore. It, it went oh, wow. under in uh, 2019. Okay. Um, financial mismanagement. I see. Um, on just about every institution I've gone to kind of ended up that way. <laughs> uh, I did my undergrad at the College of Santa Fe, uh, a private art school in Santa Fe. Oh, that's I, fascinating. So you did poli-sci at, at this art school? Poli-sci and psychology. Okay. They were the tiniest little department tucked yeah. away in a school that was known for uh, visual arts, uh, music, uh, theater, and film. That's wonderful. And they had a tiny little social science department. I, I like the perspective that gives uh, compared to sometimes you have to do an arts degree inside of a school that's focused on something else. Right. This is the complete the reverse of that. And then you decided to specialize into psychology after undergrad. Yeah. Has that always been your goal personally? No. I mean, originally I was a film major. Oh, wonderful, okay. <laughs> Going all the way back, I mean, that's what took me to Vegas, was uh, I, I was originally interested in film. Yeah. Um, so started at the College of Santa Fe and then couldn't afford it. So worked a little ways and then went to UNLV. Didn't like where the program was heading there and uh, kind of sat and went, well, what do I do? All the, all the time previously, I used to fill in my my class schedules with psychology classes. I uh, took a psychology yeah. class and liked the professor, liked the class, like, okay, well, this saves me from driving home. I'll just take another class. I'll get the credit <laughs> for it. Um, and did that with poli-sci, too. <laughs> um, so when I finally said, like, well, I don't, I don't want to move to to California, I don't want to do the LA thing. Yeah. What am I going to do with my life? The giant existential crisis. Well, I'll go back to school for psychology. Yeah, I can do that. What school nearby offers a bachelor's in psychology? College of Santa Fe does. I've been there. I like the people and everything. It's a small school. And you know the area. Grew up in the area yeah. and everything. But uniquely, very few locals went to the College of Santa Fe. Oh, okay, interesting. It, it, people from across the country came mostly for the arts program. Yeah. There's a few locals in the psychology program. So that's where I started to different viewpoints and everything from across the country. Like, oh, wow. You're from Hawaii. How's that? I'm like, oh, you're from Boston? Like, <laughs> tell me a little bit about that. Getting that cross cultural exchange. Right. And then doing uh, what I like is, you know, going to an art school and trying to do like 
a, a standard social science program, you get taught how to how to think like this within psychology, but then to be creative and think outside the box and yeah, and how you do it. And that's so important. Yeah. Break outside of those boxes. I never wanted to be a cookie cutter psychologist, therapist, anything like that. Yeah. I never wanted to be the old guy in a tweed suit <laughs> with the glasses and a mustache and lie down on the couch and tell me what childhood is like. Uh -huh. yeah. what, how traumatic was potty training? Oh, right. Yeah. None of that. <laughs> never wanted to do that. I always wanted to be the rebel, the punk kid. Yeah. I wanted to be the person, like now, when I go out into the lobby for the first time and say, hi, I'm, I'm Dr. Avi, uh, to have that look of, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess I can work with you. <laughs> Do you think that helps, like, break down some of the barriers with your patients? Yes, uh, especially with my teen patients. Uh, my, my teen clients, um, they tend to have that stereotype. Parents say, okay, uh, we're, we're gonna get you into therapy, we're, we're taking you over. The kids immediately get anxious and kind of put off from it. Yeah. And they think they're gonna come see some old guy in a cardigan. Right, <laughs> yeah, it's a little, little notepad. It's a little notepad and okay, and what was your dream last night? Yeah. Um, it, it, going out there, the kids light up, the kids kind of relax. Oh, that's perfect. Sometimes the parents tense up. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're actually the doctor? <laughs> yeah, 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 I am. Um, and then they, they come in here and into this space and they relax even further. Like, yeah. okay, yeah, this is, this is a pretty LGBT affirming space. Yeah, looking around your office where we're recording right now, there's, uh, I, I think, more pride flags than I can count. <laughs> Uh, and then the, the the different knickknacks I think are really appealing. You have the the Coke can from the Star Wars place at Disneyland. Yep. So I, I the first time I came here, I was just thrilled at, <laughs> at everything about this office. So I can imagine that for teens coming in here with a lot of fear or reservations around therapy, um, they're going to feel more comfortable. And, and that's the intent. I gotta kind of cut through a lot of these preconceptions and negative expectations yeah. from it. Do you primarily work with people in that age group? Uh, I tend to get the most requests for it, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I work with uh, clients 13 to wherever. Okay. Uh, currently my, my oldest client is in their early 40s. Okay. Um, I don't get a lot of requests from elderly folks mm -hmm. coming in. Um, I'd say my lion's share are teens yeah. coming in with it. Um, like I said, everyone kind of has this preconception. You know, when when we first connected by email and everything, I don't have my photo up on any website or anything. Yeah. So, you have no idea. You think, oh, well, again, can maybe a stuffy psychologist or mental health you professional. You never really know what to expect. You never know. And Although I've seen a lot of therapists. I've done a lot of therapy mm. personally. 
I was actually going to ask, uh, when you were that age, the age of a lot of your patients, did you go to therapy? Did you have a therapist? No, no. Um, family didn't really believe in it okay. much. Um, and I think that's one of my drives in getting into this, that looking back now, I kind of wish that I had. I wish that yeah. there was someone uh, to be able to talk to about stuff like this. I wish there were community programs. I, I Growing up in the early 90s, there wasn't much anything. There, there was Center for Contemporary Arts and everything, but that's right. not mental health. That's that's a safe place to hang out. Right, but not to work through some of those complicated feelings or identity problems. Right. And then, you know, the, the zeitgeist at the time this is AIDS epidemic, this is pre-Matthew Shepard right. going on, it wasn't a safe time to yeah. really be out. That's true. That I, I didn't come out until uh, 24, 25. Um, would have loved to do that earlier. It's one of those things that looking now at the kids, like I'm really proud and kind of jealous in a way too. What was that experience like for you when, when you did come out? <laughs> I came out 10 different times to my parents. <laughs> yeah. So it was a lot of coming out, denial, forgetting about it, having to do uh, it again. Yeah. Um, it, it gave me the experience, I guess, that to be able to realize it's easier the more that you do it. The first right. time tends to be terrifying. Yeah. Um, Does that help when you're working with kids, that perspective of like the first time you say this, it's gonna be hard? Yes, yes. Um, even though, I'll tell you, know, the parents will bring their kids here and, and they have an idea of the work that I do. There isn't anything that I put forth in any materials that say like, well, you're coming here to be fixed. We're <laughs> doing reparative therapy. Like the parents know. Right. So like, you know, my my kid is gay, they're trans, they're non-binary. Yeah. I want to help them. <laughs> Whatever you can do, please help them. I just want them to be happy. Yeah. But the kids don't necessarily know that. I see. And they tend to think that parents are maybe not as affirming as they actually as, are. As they actually are. I've, I've had many kids think like, well, I think my parents are like very transphobic. I'm like, kiddo, they, they brought you to see me. <laughs> they know that you're not here for reparative therapy. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't think they'll be okay with me coming out. Like, let's, let's talk about where you're coming from with it. And let me tell you and you know, nod your head and you'll believe me later. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, they'll. Any team? Well, how do you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sweet pea. Like, let me tell you what I've gone through with it. Like, it's taken a while, but my parents have come around a little bit. Um, yours will too. Like, they've already done the first step. They've come looking to help you. Yeah. They're not denying it. Yeah. Uh, so being able to share some of those experiences, yeah, it, do, it does help the kids. And even older, older teens, young adults, yeah. 
and still navigating coming out, I'm telling yeah. you, we never stop. Coming out is a lifelong process. Right. Any new person we meet, any new job that we get, it's always gonna be there. Absolutely. Do I come out to this doctor? What do I tell them? What do they need to know? And I think especially in medical settings, um, probably for anyone, but from my experience I can speak as a trans person, there's a real question every time you go into a space of how much am I going to disclose? What's relevant? What's going to make things harder for me? Right, right. As a non-binary person and getting the form, please indicate sex and gender. Yeah. And you only get two boxes. There's no option for me here. Do I be rebellious and draw in another box and do that? (laughs) Do I bite the bullet? Do I keep quiet? Do I complain to the doctor? Do I let it go? There's there's no right or wrong answer. We were constantly having to do that. And once you get into the room with the doctor, then it's, okay, well, I need to tell you these other things that your form didn't capture. In 15 minutes. Right. In the very brief amount of time I actually have with you. Yeah. Yep. Okay, this is what you think is relevant. Let me give you extra stuff to try and color it in a little bit more. Right. And and wondering herself, like, is this relevant? Mm-hmm. Sometimes as a provider in mental health, there's things that I think are relevant that clients don't. That yeah. later on I ask, like, well, I kind of needed to know this. You, you didn't tell me about this before. I'm like, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know to tell you. Like, is that important? Yeah, that completely changes the whole conceptualization of your case and how to help you and everything. I wish there was an easy answer for it. <laughs> but it's just about actually connecting with people as people, right? It, it, it gets better over time as yeah. you get the relationship and the comfort, yeah. 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 So you work, I think, you really specialize in working with queer people in general, yeah. right? Was that what you set out to do once you got through graduate school? Or is that something you've kind of moved into over time? I kind of started to see it when I was an undergrad oh, for okay. psychology. So very early very early that, uh, again, with all the politics at the time, this is same-sex marriage and everything was being debated, Um, and me coming out of growing up in the 90s and everything, there's just this gap, this hole in surfaces. No one was really doing it. No one was providing this. Um, As an undergrad, I started to think because they'd ask like well if you're going to be going to grad school you you kind of have to choose what your research would be what what is it that you want to be doing because right in a PhD program you have to match with uh, ongoing need, faculty right, to help yeah. them and if they're they're doing lab work with mice and you want to do <laughs> you know advocacy policy change you're not going to get accepted for it. Right. Uh, when I was applying to graduate programs, no one, no one was interested with it. Got a lot of rejection. Yeah. That's what led me into into 
doing a, a PsyD program. I, I wasn't interested in doing research. I wanted to be in the trenches. I wanted yeah. to be working with clients. So this was the opportunity. And I was able to find faculty that had similar interests, I LGBT focus. Right. Which I think is not easy to do. No. How hard is it to find a, a competent LGBT provider in mental health as it is, just as, as a exactly. client? Exactly. Or there's a waiting list, or the person's too far, or they don't take your insurance, or it's on e and on. It's even harder to find in academia a mentor, an advisor that will walk yeah. you through it, who has that experience. So did you ultimately find that advisor? I did, I did. Uh, that's what pointed me in, into Arizona. I was looking throughout the Southwest for an advisor that was interested in, in LGBT work. Uh, and I found Dr. Greg Schrader uh, from Argosy. Now he's with NAU. Okay. Um, and I applied to, um, to Argosy strictly on, on that basis. Oh, that's, like, <laughs> that's why you're here. Yeah. Because of that one mentor. That one mentor. <laughs> that we're still very close and very close contact and everything. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and, and I let him know at the time, like, yeah, you're specifically the reason why I came here. I could have ended up anywhere else, but we, you had a similar interest yeah. to me. So from day one of grad school, uh, we were doing introductions, like, this is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in doing LGBT work. And it solidified into gender work, trans care. Yeah. Um, and every class, everything that I did from then on, any presentation for any given class, it was always LGBT. That's fantastic. Um, that's so rare. I mean, do, do you think that the, the field now is getting better about that, even by baby steps? Or is it pretty much in the same place it's been? Depends on how you're defining better. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> or, break that down for me. Are there more people interested in doing it? Yes. There, there's more interest. There's more students applying to the program. There's more students coming in that are identifying LGBTQ. Right. That's true of students in general. Every yeah, which is cool. How many of them are interested in in doing LGBT focused care? Not as many as you would think. Right. There are a lot of folks that, that'll say, like, well, that's who I am, but that's not everything. Like, which I, is fair. I, which is completely fair. I, I want to I go do neuropsychology. I want to yeah. study brain function. <laughs> I, I want to I do this. I want to do substance use. Cool. Yeah. Go do it. There's a need for it everywhere. And many of those things are also really intimately connected to some LGBT experiences absolutely, too. Absolutely, absolutely. All the different places that I've worked as, as a trainee, I ended up becoming like the LGBT consultant. Oh yeah. Because they all had a need for it and nobody on staff was knowledgeable. The competency just isn't there. Which frightened me because yeah. I think I'm an idiot. <laughs> like, you're coming to me? I don't know anything. Like, right, I, you're not I'm walking and saying, I know everything. I'm going to tell you. Absolutely not. Yeah. I, I'm the one going, well, uh, there's this, and here's what 
this research says and here's what they're saying this organization like yeah <laughs> try that here's this like, grab bag of knowledge uh, or like oh we we need connections and resources like I don't know who to go I'm like well talk to Jean over at HRC <laughs> like I, I met her I'm like really like wow you know so many people I guess I do <laughs> as a student that was terrifying I bet to have senior staff like professionals that looking up to that yeah. I'm holding on pedestals going uh, what, do, what do we do with with this client like um, they they're saying that they're gender fluid and I don't know what any of that is like Avi <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> well gender fluid it can shift like all right think fluidity right right Oh, so it's not the same data. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we we need you to to present. You, you need to. We need oh, to have wow, a presentation yeah. on the staff and the training. Like, I'm doing the training. Like, well, you're the expert. I don't. <laughs> right. You don't think of yourself <laughs> I, as an expert. No, I still don't think of myself as the expert at all. Yeah. So you're seeing more people being interested in it. Maybe still not enough. But then where is that breaking down in terms of actually improving outcomes? Level of training where, where it is. I, um, I see a lot of professionals out there right now that kind of do the surface level training, the basics, the, the 101, yeah. learning the vocabulary, and then saying, I can I can do this work. So like here's what a pronoun is. Here's this list of identities. Here's the gender bread man. Here's a gen or the gender <laughs> unicorn cuz I heard gender bread man is is controversial. Oh, right. I don't know why, but I heard this and so So now I won't do, use that. Now I won't do that. Yeah. Um I have trans clients coming to me. I've never done an evaluation for a letter. They want a surgery letter. Uh, can someone give me a template? For that yeah we've spoken about that a little bit yeah. the danger of just saying can you give me a template for this right what do you think is the challenge there because I know that just speaking to many trans people who have difficulty accessing care when they find a therapist who they can actually even get an appointment with that idea of like I can train them to write the letter for me it can be a lifeline but on the flip side they're not getting the actual care they necessarily need, right? Right. Well, I, I look at that problematic in the way of, like, you as the client have to train me. Right. That's putting a huge burden on you. I'm here to help you. Right. You shouldn't have to train me. If you have questions that I'm unfamiliar with, per our ethical code, I need to go on my own. Yeah. and research that. I need to go get guidance and training. It is not on you, the client, to do that. <laughs> yeah. But unfortunately, it, it just it, does it, fall it happens. on yeah. the client so often. Right. The, the, the look of relief when clients come to see me, I tell them, like, I get it. You, you, don't, you don't have to explain. You don't have to train me. I, 
here's how it's all going to go down. Here's yeah. here's how I I do my evals and everything, and it sounds really complicated and technical. We're going to just talk. It's a conversation, and I'm just taking notes, and I'm getting your history and yeah. checking mental health history and what's going on. I, I write it up. You'll see it, and it's just a story. It helps so much when you, when you can get past, like, do I have to defend myself in this space? I see a therapist regularly. The first time I found a therapist who was non-binary, I was thrilled because I was able to say, okay, we don't even need to talk about gender things because that's not what I want therapy for at this point in my life. Oh, yes. But I also yeah. don't have to bring up, okay, here's what I mean every time I do talk about something related to gender. I used to get referrals from different placements that I worked at from other therapists and trainees saying, um, I, I got assigned this LGBT client. Um, I'm, I'm going to transfer him to you because this, this is your bag. This right. is your specialty. Like, okay, and sit down with them. Like, what's going on? Like, uh, I'm having trouble finding a job. Okay, anything else? Like, identity stuff? No, I'm, I'm good. I just. Right. Regular, typical. Exactly. It, but the other practitioners, they don't want to. Freaked out yeah. from it and thought, oh, you know, I'm not competent in this cultural work, so let's shove right. it over. And I'd have to look and say, like, is this what you would do if this was a racial characteristic? A black client, a, a Latino client? Yeah. Are they coming in specifically related to, to race and identity? Or is it like, I just need help in yeah. you know, finding a job, getting housing, you know, I'm having a rough time at work and I need somewhere to complain about my boss or something. Yeah. Um, that's some of the struggle that, you know, folks like tell I used to tell people uh, colleagues like you, know, you could work with them right well, I, I don't I don't feel competent like, I don't do magic <laughs> over <here. laughs> yeah this this isn't alchemy that I'm doing with with anyone like sit and talk with them it's is this yeah. is the identity relevant to it I, I'd hear that even with clients going to medical providers and everything. Absolutely. Trans broken arm syndrome. Exactly, yeah. You're going in to get your uh, appendix removed and it's a question of, well, yeah. you need to stop your hormones before we can do this. Yeah, well, it, it's probably related to your hormones, so you need to go get blood drawn and we need to see what's aggravating. Yeah. Like, you have an inflamed appendix. Like, right. This has nothing to do with it. That's, I've, I've seen that growing trans broken arm syndrome a lot, that as there's more people doing it, oh, there's right. still this hesitation right. among providers. There's an awareness and the awareness almost gets in the way sometimes. Yeah. So you work with the Psychological Association for the state, right? Yes, the Arizona Psychological Association. Okay. Yeah. And do you do advocacy work inside of the association around this kind of Issues? Yes, yes. It's kind of been new-ish okay. stuff. Um, the association t 
typically doesn't doesn't delve into political stuff, but advocacy and you know, calling more for trainings and workshops yeah. and and uh, uh, programming within convention and and other opportunities or training. Right. They have been pretty good with that. Like uh, I'm aware that you're you're going to be participating in, in be the workshop in for the, the convention. In the convention, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is awesome. Um, I can see the value with it because specifically what, what I read in, in the description mm -hmm. of, of that presentation, the panel, um, I think that's going to open a lot of eyes yeah. to professionals. I mean, I'm intimidated going into that space, um, even though I've spent just for my own reasons a lot of time around uh, psychiatric professionals. Mm -hmm. I, I'm still intimidated because I'm not an academic, mm -hmm. and I think that that space is people, it's, it's a lot of people who really expect that kind of academic discourse. But m maybe that's not true, but I worry about like, am I gonna be able to communicate what I need to communicate? Do you deal with that kind of, um, how do I push this in the right direction? Is that something you have to think about a lot? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, ha having been around uh, the association professionals since Best starting grad school. Yeah. Um, initially, I, I had that same bit, like, oh my God, I'm going to this huge professional convention. So yeah. Doctors that are going to be there and they're going to be expecting this advanced level of material. Yeah. And then we get hung up on talking vocabulary for <laughs> an hour in the 90-minute presentation because uh, yeah. folks struggle with the difference between bisexual and pansexual. Oh, gosh, And yeah. you go, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's really frustrating because that's not what's changing my life on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. That's not what I'm seeing in the communities I spend time in, right? I mean, okay, I gotta be honest, I do see a lot of people get into like flame wars online about bi versus pan. And sure. Stuff. But in terms of like our day-to-day -day lives and our, our therapeutic needs, yeah. that's not what's relevant. There has to be that level of understanding, but just so you can like get past it, I think. Yes. I, I look at it like if if I can advocate and push professionals getting past pronouns and you know suffixes prefixes right you know, uh, you know what, what gyneromantic versus androsexual if we could kind of put that on the back burner and I can get everyone to start to understand like a bigger problem like transmedicalism right. professionals you know you want to start a flame war in the community <sighs> go into any listserv group chat whatever and say you have to have dysphoria in order to be trans right <laughs> oh my god uh, that, it's going to explode absolutely that's, that's a bomb yeah now, what I think is interesting is you're working in a medical field. And so negotiating that there is, that seems like it could be tricky where you're trying to convince someone, okay, here's the therapeutic need, but also there isn't something in the DSM necessarily if we're not gonna use dysphoria as a criterion. Right, I, well, it, using the DSM 
it is so tricky anyway. Uh, yeah, for what, how do you mean? Well, gender dysphoria is unique out of all the diagnoses in the DSM. Mm -hmm. It's the only medical condition that's listed as a mental health condition. Right. It's the only condition where the treatment is to affirm the client's presentation. Yeah. You know, come in and you say, I'm trans. I think I'm trans. I want to explore it. Okay, well, let's see what we can do to affirm that. Yeah. Here, here's how you can look. Let's start with basic social transition and everything. Try yeah. a name, try a pronoun. We don't do that with any other condition in the DSM. Right. If someone comes to me and says, uh, I, I have OCD and I'm washing my hands all the time, I don't say, okay, well, let's see what techniques we can do to help you wash your hands better or more thoroughly. Yeah. If someone's coming in with uh, paranoia, psychosis, I think the government is out to get me. I don't sit with them going, well, let, let's see, you know, have you done a sweep for your house? Have yeah, you, let's do some you, research. Let's, let's, let's get the... Build, the what, what have you done? Why would the, the government up. be let's interested get the in you? the string, yeah. yeah. Have you hired a private investigator? Just, we don't do that. Absolutely not, yeah. Gender dysphoria is completely unique, which makes me laugh politically mm -hmm. when I hear more conservative folks saying, like, these people don't need, you know, surgery. They don't need hormones. They need therapy. Like, yeah, the therapies to affirm it. Like, <laughs> we're going in circles here. Right. Like, that's what we're doing. We're, yeah, this is the proper treatment that, that yeah. everybody's getting. Yeah, it's disingenuous, I think. Absolutely. And with some of the providers that aren't as knowledgeable, aren't as familiar with it, they get caught in that loop, kind of second-guessing themselves. Yeah. Going, oh, well, maybe I need to do further stuff. Uh, they'll use old standards of care. Oh, well, yes, I can see you and we can get you ready for a letter, but um, I'm going to need to see you in therapy for about a year or so before yeah. we get to that. People that's, still do that. They do. Uh, that's that's SOC six. Like if yeah. I I when I give presentations to students, like if you ever hear this, like walk out. That yeah. isn't that isn't current care. That isn't SOC seven. Right. Let alone eight. SOC eight, which. The WPATH just announced today that they're they're getting ready to release it probably in the next month or so. Oh, good. I, I didn't see that yet. Just it just came out before we met today. Oh. Uh, checking email. I've like, got to look oh, into that. Oh, message from the president and everything. They want to have it ready for their convention. I see. That makes sense. So, I really want to go over that. I'm going to have to read over it very carefully because I wasn't a huge fan of the draft that came out. Yeah, uh, there was some. Year. There was a lot of controversy changes. with, especially with the adolescent care. Yeah. Because um, the answers of, or the questions coming up about rapid onset gender dysphoria, <laughs> the diagnosis that doesn't actually exist. Right. People uh, love to talk about it. Yes. Uh, that, that was a, a big topic in the, the conference that was, that yeah. was at. 
Well, um, for the listeners, we've been using a lot of terms. So right. DSM is... Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and now it is in the fifth edition with text revision. And then WPATH. World Professional Organ Association of Transgender yeah. Health. And then Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, I think... People, okay, so this is my take on it. People love to talk when they believe in rapid onset gender dysphoria of like transness is a social contagion. I think talking about rapid onset gender dysphoria is a social contagion. I would agree. It's this weird wildfire. It, it, it's, they're trying to give a clinical term to the idea of people are coming out as trans or non-binary because it's trendy. Right. A kid is coming out, an adolescent is coming out as trans because other kids at their school are doing it. So somehow they're doing it to, to fit in and be cool. Yeah, because of course that's what every, every kid wants to be discriminated against their whole life to be cool. Right. It's the same argument that they made in the 90s about gay and lesbian kids. Yeah. You're not really gay. You're just doing it for attention. Right. Like, Yes, I'm choosing to put my safety in danger to be cool. Right. The reason why I say that this is a diagnosis that doesn't really exist, like it isn't in the DSM for right. one, um, but the whole basis around it was interviews with parents of trans kids. Yeah. So, well, when when did your kid show signs of being trans. Like, oh, well, they were like 15, 16. I don't remember them showing any signs as a kid, you know. I put my, you know, I, I raised my son as a girl and you know, they were fine in dresses and played with Barbie dolls right. and everything and all of a sudden a teenager, they're trans. It's parents getting locked into the stereotype. Right. Again, this belief that like everybody fits in, the narrative stays the same yeah. for everyone. I was four years old and I played with G.I. Joes instead of Barbies <laughs> and I was a little tomboy and... But of course that's not. Never. That's some people's experience, whether they're cis or trans. Yeah. But it's not everyone's experience. Out of the hundreds of trans clients I've worked with, are there similar points in everybody's story? Yeah. But they're all different. Yeah. All of them are different. I can't ever use a template in a gender history because <laughs> it just doesn't apply to everybody. Right. Moreover, if I'm working with a client and it sounds stereotypical, that's a cue for me to start asking. Like, yeah. Okay, where on social media are you getting the <laughs> things to tell your therapist for a letter? Right. Are you going on Reddit? Is this a Tumblr thing? Because I go on both of those too. Yeah, you can find it on Ask Trans or whatever. Ask and, Transgender. And they'll they get called out. They'll you know they'll be a little embarrassed and like, well, I didn't know I I, I was feeling like this until puberty. Like, okay, you're 18. What's the criteria for gender dysphoria? How long do you have to have symptoms for it? I don't know. Six months. Right. Really? Yeah. You've been feeling dysphoric for at least six months? Yeah. Cool. Now we can go through the other six criteria <laughs> for it. Like, as long as we're in that, that right. timeline, that's all. It doesn't say in there, 
have to be showing signs in childhood yeah. if you're working with children for there's similar criteria but there's a longer span with it that you start to be aware of, of that yeah parents getting this idea that like well my my child didn't follow the stereotype therefore I'm not sure this is real right it's completely invalidating yeah moreover you know I asking any of my trans clients when did you realize you were different? Yeah. When did you notice how I see myself didn't match my parts versus when did you come out to your parents? Huge difference. It's not one moment in time. No. Not even close. A lot of the time they start to see signs in childhood. Early childhood, late childhood. Yeah. Pre-12. When do they come out to parents? Depending on when they're coming to me. <laughs> Pretty recently, within about six months of coming to see me, maybe a year. Yep. Now, something I wonder about is there's this, I don't know exactly how many years it's been, but this rapid onset, rapid onset gender dysphoria concern and this political backlash against trans kids especially, mm -hmm. are you seeing that bleed into your patients' experiences and what they're willing to deal with in their own lives? Somewhat. Okay. Um, the concerns with, with current politics among teens, I mean, they're not, they're not always the most politically sappy. They're, they're not looking up CNN or anything. They got other things going on. Even, even for me, with interest in this when I was a kid, I wasn't watching the news a whole lot. Yeah. You know, oh, that's, that's adult stuff. That's, that's all depressing. <laughs> I'm depressed on my own. I don't, need, <laughs> I don't need help for that. Yeah, the classic teen experience. Right. Um, the ones that are a little more savvy and seeing what's happening in other states, they're asking me a lot. What do you think? What are the chances of something like this happening yeah. over here? Uh, my young teens wanting to know af after, um, uh, was it uh, SB 1068? The, the there was 1138, which was 30. the gender affirming care ban. Okay. Fortunately, got. 68 was the, the sports. 65. 65 was the sports. There's a million bills. Yeah. <laughs> Twenty twenty-two this year, and two of them passed. Yeah, better better odds, but these ones were were awful. Thirty-eight was the one that uh, some of my kids were asking, like, "Well, does that mean I I can't have surgery at all?" Like, well, not many surgeons are going to be doing surgery on a sixteen-year-old. Anyway, the right. one the ones that I consult with. Maybe you'll have to talk, but this this isn't a major problem, right? It's generally not part of it, right? Experience in, anyway. In, in my at that age, in my letters to lawmakers, told them this is a solution in search of a problem. Yeah, there's not. I'm not getting a rush of minors yeah. trying to get surgery. Now, unfortunately, I think some of the bills that are being passed 
go way beyond surgery to hormones and puberty blockers and even gender-affirming therapy. Right. 38 initially yeah. was, was doing that Fully comprehensive, yeah. yeah. So looking ahead, I think probably we should wrap up, but I really want to ask this before we close. Sure. Um, looking ahead, if a bill like that comes back mm -hmm. next year, which it e easily Easily, could, yeah. Um, and maybe this time it passes, right? If we end up in that kind of Texas legal reality, how are you preparing for that? How are you going to contend with that? I'm trying to prepare since now and trying to see how I can partner myself as a provider with the, the State Psych Association, with advocacy organizations, where we as an organization can, can help fight it as legislation is being debated. Yeah. If, if it comes down, like 38 was uh, initially introduced, a, right. a blanket ban, there's, I can't stay here. I, I kind of have to face that reality. Like, it, it was written that like someone providing gender-affirming care would be uh, committing a felony. One of the versions of the bill did actually make it a felony. Yeah, yeah. Uh, One of the versions of the bill classified it as abuse. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the things we might be dealing with. Right. As, as a, a mental health provider, I'm limited in what I can do because if I commit a felony, I would lose any license that right. I would have. Um, I, I wouldn't see a future for it. Yeah. That couldn't could I still practice just not doing any gender affirming work? That leaves a horrible gap in care, which it, is already so it, sparse. It's so sparse, but then to essentially tell people who are suffering and struggling, tough shit. Yeah, I don't like that one iota. Um, when 38 was initially introduced like that, I was talking with colleagues, my boss, my supervisor, saying, I may not be here next year. I may be forced to return to New Mexico. Yeah. Um, New Mexico, thankfully, is... Oh, well, New Mexico is beautiful. It is... Land an, of entrapment. It, it is an <laughs> island of... LGBT affirmation and rights. Right. It's, it's a breath of fresh air. Um, I, I would have to explain to all my clients, I'm, I would have to flee. Yeah. I can do this kind of work in New Mexico happily. I don't like the idea of being driven from a place that I'm starting to consider home. Yeah. From my community, from my family of choice. Yeah. That's wrong on so many levels. Yeah. And it really hurts the entire community to have all of those resources driven out of our state. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking with me today. My for pleasure. The podcast. This was really wonderful. I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, me too.
If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Avi Vieira as much as I did, please consider leaving a rating or a review for the Arizona Equals Conversation on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast, please consider signing up at equalityarizona.org stories. As a final note, this episode is publishing on August 2nd, 2022, which is the date of the primary elections. If you haven't voted yet, make sure to get out and vote today. For more information about how and where to vote and what's on the ballot, visit equalityarizona.org vote.